I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. to engineer biology is not only revolutionizing how we treat illness, but the way we grow food and produce goods as well. With this ability, though, comes an awareness of how the same technology can be used for nefarious purposes. We spoke to Matt McKnight, General Manager of Biosecurity for Ginkgo Bioworks, about our increasing ability to engineer biology, the potential risks that come with that, and the steps we're taking to safeguard ourselves against those threats. Matt, thanks for joining us. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. I I look forward to the conversation. We're going to talk about biosecurity, the growth of the bioeconomy, and as we worry about responding to natural and biologic threats, how we need to be thinking about the growing ease with which we can engineer biology and be vigilant against man-made threats as well. Perhaps we can start with the big picture. We've recently had President Biden unveil a national biotechnology and biomanufacturing initiative. Where are we in terms of seeing biotechnology's potential beyond biomedical innovation to remake the way we produce goods, energy, and, and food? Yeah, I think that's a really great place to start. And, um, you know, I, th- I think when your listeners and, and honestly, when the country starts to kind of try to get their head around what's happening in biology, the, the place that I have always gone to is to think about the great transitions of actually the 20th century. And I use that as, as a way to think about the scale of changes that, that we'll see. Um, and so if you were to ask me in a very simplistic way, what were the two most important themes and the two most important technological changes over the course of 1900 to 2000, I would point you directly to uh, the transition in chemistry and physics from research bench science to human controlled engineering disciplines, right? The, the, Transition to chemical engineering takes the barrel of oil and turns it into literally every product around us, for better or worse, right? There's a whole conversation we can go into on engineered biology's uh, uh, opportunity in climate change. But also with physics, right? We go from uh, theoretical physics, experimental, to massive innovation in our ability to send satellites uh, around the world to to have communication technology and transit that interconnects the world in new ways. And that's the ability to turn physics into an engineering discipline. The, the way to think about that is the economic output of the 20th century, which if you look at a chart is exponential, is directly a result of physics and chemistry becoming engineerable. Equally, and this is the other half to the conversation that we can have today about biology as well, equally, if you look at the history of human conflict in the 20th century, it is essentially a story of physics and chemistry and the interconnectedness of the planet brought by those two domains, right? So 
World War One. What is it other than the war, the first major war of chemistry, massive industrialization of gunpowder, obviously um, the the significant use of chemical gas. World War II really is defined, the start point, at least through an American lens, is Pearl Harbor. Airplanes coming across the ocean. It ends with the definition of physics used for malvolent purposes uh, in, in the atomic bomb. And at the end of the century, if you kind of then process through, uh, the digital revolution is also simply a result of material science, chemistry, plus electrical engineering. Those are physics and chemistry, that is physics and chemistry coming together on the computer chip to drive innovation in the digital ecosystem. And look at, again, human conflict today, hacking, uh, cybercrime. It is, again, also used for these kind of very um, uh, less productive purposes. And so the way to think about what's happening in biology today is from the from genentics, kind of first innovations in insulin, all the way through to today has been this steady move out of biology as something we experiment with because it's so powerful. Even when you experiment with it, it creates amazing products to a world today where with the, the intersection of computational power, our knowledge of biology, robotics, we are on the cusp of turning biology into a truly human-controlled engineerable discipline. There's, you know, I'm, I've certainly drunk every little bit of Kool-Aid on this topic, but I will tell you the it is so utterly clear to me that we as a society need to get ready as business people, as people that just live in this world for what the next 50 years will be defined by is amazing changes in economic output, amazing changes in, in medicine and our ability to create uh, products we've never thought about because of our ability to program cells, our ability to engineer the core of biology. Um, and... We also have to be incredibly thoughtful and, and ensure we are doing everything we can to mitigate the risk for the first time in this arc of chemistry, physics, and biology to mitigate the risk that these technologies are used for malvolent purposes. And that's it's not something we can do passively. It's also something we need to do proactively. So I think that's the big picture. I'll pause there, but I, you know, but I, I always like to kind of frame why why are we seeing an executive order now? Why are we seeing... Uh, new congressional commissions now. This this is really the big picture of what's happening, you know, and especially will affect the next fifty years. As someone who's living this, how significant is the Biden initiative? What will it do to advance the development of the bioeconomy? Yes, I think uh, I think that this is actually a very significant moment. Uh, and and what is neat about it, first of all, obviously we live in a hyper partisan time, a hyper politically uh, charged time. This is a topic that has been one of the very few truly bipartisan topics. And this being the recognition of of synthetic biology, engineered biology, biomanufacturing as a strategic capability, strategic economic capability, as well as the need to invest in the other half of it, biosecurity technologies, the technologies, the technologies of biodefense uh, and biosafety. It, it is something that the previous administration was very focused on and this administration has carried forward. It is something that both houses of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats pay attention to. And I would say that putting a marker on kind of the big events of the last six weeks, President Biden flying to Boston, I, I will readily uh, express my 
um, my bias towards Boston being a center of, of biotech innovation, uh, the executive order and a few other things we can talk about. Um, it's finally, it's, it's, it's really a moment where this is real, where this is reorienting the levers of the very, very powerful levers, sometimes slow to move, but the very powerful levers of government around a blueprint. And that's really what to think about, how to think about the EO. It's a blueprint that guides every, everybody from commerce to agriculture, to defense, to intelligence about what the blueprint for a bioeconomy and for biosecurity looks like. The second major thing it does, and so in addition to moving the kind of um, machinery of a very, very powerful entity in our society, government, it is also very well articulated. It's, it makes it clear this is not just pharma. This is also about creating amazing products in the world uh, from not just health, but to agriculture, energy, climate tech, and national security. Uh, and I think we're even seeing this with our partners in government and in the private sector. It is having a catalyzing, mobilizing effect. Uh, and so I think it's a big deal. It's, it's, um, it's a renew, it's a renewed focus. There's a lot of us that have been, you know, beating the drums for a long time. And, and this is a, this is a big step forward. It's a, a difficult environment for bold policies. Are, are there areas that neglected things that's too timid about? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I think, you know, I'll comment on a few things, but, but maybe let me just start with, a couple of things that did not have to be included um, that were, not, it was not a foregone conclusion that they would be included. And so we were, we were really impressed honestly by the level of precision and focus on biosecurity and monitoring of biology or biosurveillance. Um, I think this is, we can come back to this, but it, it is one of those areas that has a long history, but was but was thought about here in a different way, really thinking about the way we think about synthetic biology as um, the code of life, ATCs and Gs, are simply the code that powers cells, right? It is an information medium, like zeros and ones are an information medium for computers. And it really, we really saw a, a great shift towards thinking about biosecurity in innovative ways. Um, I think also, the clear focus on onshoring biomanufacturing. Uh, this was this is a really important focus. It is not an easy thing to do, just like building chips. You know, chip manufacturing domestically is not easy because it's cheaper in a lot of other places. It's a scale infrastructure game. But in, in the case of um, any sort of existential conflict, in particular over places like Taiwan, much of our you know medical supply chain including uh active pharmaceutical agreement ingredients apis is is overseas that that is an important focus i think the one you know one area that we are seeing activity in in other parts of um you know the national security council and otherwise people get this idea but it wasn't as clearly delineated is is the strategic way to think about uh the dna and rna of the planet as a natural resource. So the analogy I like to use here, and certainly, certainly at Ginkgo, we are very much nerds on this topic um, and, and, and proudly so, but you know, the United States Geological Survey was created in the, late, in the mid to late 1800s to go not exploit any resources, but to, to map and categorize the um, geologic, primarily the geologic, but also like the timber resources of the United States of America. 
because those were those were economic assets that if you don't map it and you don't see it, you can't then make plans to effectively, appropriately, and ethically use it. So the USGS kind of was first was about characterizing what we had so that you could then do zoning or you could do policies on who could cut or mine. And it's really important to be thinking, especially in the area of synthetic, era of synthetic biology, where we use the raw code from 4 billion years of evolution, right? Remember, A, T, Cs, and Gs power every cell on the planet, whether they're human cells, plant cells, bacterial cells, they all run on the same DNA. You know, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park 101, right? Like they run on chemical compounds that are common. And that's an instruction set. Those are the zeros and ones, as, as I mentioned, right? That's an instruction set for making new products. And when you can program DNA into cells, like we do at scale at Ginkgo, the, that, that instruction set is valuable. So mapping the, the DNA and RNA of non-human things is like a USGS 2.0. You know, looking at the deep thermal vents in, in Yellowstone National Park or, you know, that chameleon whose skin changes color you know, that's all driven by DNA code in, in cells. And so I, I do think that there's a foundational role in kind of the traditional role of government and in, in these kind of creating the conditions where there's potentially market failures for economic growth and expansion. I think we'd really love to see a more substantive focus over time. And, and certainly uh, I think the, the team looking at this is very aware of it. Um, uh, as a concept of like mapping the genetic resources, non-human genetic resources of the, in our case, the United States. And in other cases, you know, the, the resources of other countries and giving them the tools to make sure that they are able to uh, create value from those, uh, from those resources, just like we've done with fossil fuels and, and uh, other mineral resources, but, but also doing so with the lessons learned of how those goods have been exploited in the past and, and trying not to do so in the same way in the future. What's the case for harnessing biologic processes to do things in new ways? What are the, the potential benefits? Yeah, I think so. Um, this is like a really good area to use you know, tangible examples. Um, uh, we have a really big program with Bayer Crop Science, right? Major agricultural company. And the program has many different facets to it, but the core, the core kind of component harkens back to this idea of massive innovation in chemistry leading to then a similar massive innovation in biology. So the way fertilizer is formed today, for, for those listeners who aren't chemical engineers, right? We, it's called the Haber-Bosch process. We take and build massive plants physical physical manufacturing facilities and those facilities are essentially structured to burn a ton of natural gas to suck nitrogen out of the atmosphere and turn it into ammonia-based fertilizers that process the Haber-Bosch process is done also by bacteria that live on the roots of peanuts legumes in general but use peanuts as an example so there's little bacteria that live on the roots of peanuts that take nitrogen out of the atmosphere, use their biological process to feed those plants with the nitrogen they need to grow, live, and produce peanuts. And so the, the 
well, so then add one other piece to it. The world's staple crops, corn, wheat, rice, they don't have that bacteria that lives naturally on, on uh, their roots to do that process. So that's where we use all of our chemical engineering, kind of the epitome of chemical engineering, the Haber-Bosch process, where we use that ammonia-based fertilizer to grow those crops. You know, it's, it is also very important we grow those crops because they feed people on this planet. But the project we have with Bayer, which is a, you know, a, a challenging project, which is to, is to take the genetic program from the bacteria on peanuts and learn from it and then reprogram the bacteria that live on corn, wheat, and rice or reprogram bacteria and related processes and then form it into a seed coating or other application that you can put onto corn, wheat, and rice and thus replace the need for some or all of the nitrogen-based fertilizer. If one of the major objectives in our next 50 years has to be removing carbon emissions from the uh, atmosphere, removing both current emissions that happen every day and, and emissions that have already happened, you know, it's these little things that reduce the need for burning natural gas, as an example, to produce fertilizer. That's, I think that's one of my single favorite examples of like what type of massive impact the engineering of biology or the, the harnessing of biological processes um, can have. There are what I would call three related challenges we need to overcome, which are cost, capacity, and scale. I suspect if we solve the scale issue, we'll address the other two. Why has it been so difficult to bring to commercial scale processes developed in the lab? Yeah, you know, I think I'll take I'll take one piece of this. Um, the the founding story of Ginkgo, which is also the kind of excuse me the overarching focus of what what the kind of cell programming part of half of Ginkgo does every day, which is, as, as we'll talk about, is one half, and then the biosecurity portion is the other half, is, is one based on uh, one of our five founders, um, a MIT professor named Tom Knight, who came to MIT uh, in the 70s with, um, as an electrical engineer. And his early time at MIT and, and, you know, making sure I get this, uh, this data right, but we'll go with it for purposes of this, of this uh, conversation. I think he was like the fifth user of ARPANET, for example, like the fifth node on the, on the network. So right, like a deep computer scientist, electrical engineer. In the 90s, he, he kind of said, well, this computer thing is really mature, humorous, obviously. But um, at that time, you know, if you, if you were the fifth user in the ARPANET, ARPANET uh, the 90s probably felt very mature. And he said, what's the interesting thing to program going forward? Well, there are these things called cells and they run on digital code in the form of DNA. Why aren't we programming cells? Like, wh like what, is the, what is the reason we're not doing it? And, you know, he comes to Ginkgo every day and he'd tell you this story if you're sitting here uh, uh, first person. It's one of my favorite conversations to have with him. And the short answer was, well, I guess... I, Tom Knight, need to go get an undergraduate degree in biology to really figure this question out. So as a tenured professor at MIT, he goes and essentially gets an MIT undergrad in biology, and then he opens the first wet lab in the computer science department at MIT. And to this day, Tom, uh, I believe, is the owner of syntheticbiology.com, and I'd encourage, I'd encourage uh, the, your listeners to go check it out. So he, he asked this question, and then his kind of first 
of many revelations on the topic was why is this not happening at more scale? Why aren't we programming cells? Well, because it's really hard, right? It's programming a cell. There's so many different types of cells. There's so many different types of genetic programs. We don't really know how they all work. And it's slow and expensive. Why? Because to program a cell, to put DNA into a cell and then grow that cell and figure out what it does for so many years is essentially a, a manual process done by PhDs with, with pipettes moving liquids around a lab bench. That is, that is not a scalable process. So what he ultimately, ultimately kind of focused on was if we want to do more programming of cells, then you really need to think about the tools, just like early computers. To, pro to program a computer early, you know, kind of in early computers, you had to solder together hardware, right? Like in the 90s, you weren't watching computer programmers soldering together hardware. No. So he was like, we have to fix the tool problem, the tool problem, i.e. the problem of making genetic engineering much more efficient. So that's, you know, Ginkgo is an example of this, but Ginkgo's overriding focus for... 13 years or 14, close to 14 years that it's been founded has been to take the lab protocols of a bench scientist, break them down into to operational, operational units, and then wrap them in software and, and put that set of protocols into robotic implementation. And if you do that, then the, the thing that we measure, there's a bunch of metrics we measure, but the, one, the best one to think about is the cost per DNA program written into a cell and characterized. We call that a strain test. Essentially, if you write a DNA program into a cell and then you grow that cell and see what it does and you collect the data. How much does it cost to do that one time? Because if it costs a billion dollars, you're not going to invent very many products. Because, oh, by the way, think about computer programming. You never get the program right the first time. You write a program, you compile it, you debug it. It doesn't work. You fix it because it's basically free. So that's, if you focus on that cost per program written, the more, the more programming you can do, the more likely you are to be successful. And so the, that's, the me, that's the measure of efficiency that we're looking at. And if you can change that cost dynamic, right, then you can, you can apply these with a higher probability of good outcomes. Um, and so, you know, I'll pause there, but I think one of the major scale pieces that has been in progress, and many companies have been working on this in different ways, is to change the cost to do the fundamental R&D so that you can try more scale-up options, uh, so you can bring the cost of manufacturing down for products. And I guess I'll, I'll, I'll take that back and I'll give you one very specific example. We worked on Moderna's vaccine early on. And the one step that we worked on was the first step of fermentation, where we brought their E. coli-based chassis to produce uh, the first, the first step in the in the manufacturing process, which is spitting out DNA plasmids, little circle of DNA, and we brought it through an optimization process to use these tools that Tom talked about needing to improve to optimize the conditions for fermentation. Part of genetic engineering is how do you grow it, and really improve that step of the process, which gave them the ability to produce much, much more in the first precursor steps. That is how you, on the front end, how you bring more, you know, scale and efficiency. In that case, it was because we needed to produce billions of vaccines, which has been just such an amazing feat. Um, but it was about bringing more scale of production via the engineering and process development component of, uh, of the kind of long arc to getting into biomanufacturing. So, like, summary of a four-minute answer, it's like tools.
and the tools and it's, it's the tool development just like what happened in the in computers in the 70s 80s and 90s oh by the way still continues to this day in computing you mentioned the moderna vaccine let's talk about covid19 and dealing with biologic threats as we head into winter we'll see whether there's another wave or a, a new strain to contend with but we know trends like urbanization, climate change, and globalization are pushing the outbreaks of zoonotic diseases and allowing them to spread rapidly. These are diseases that people may have no immunity to, and vaccines and therapies may not readily be available. What have we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic in regards to preparing for and responding to future threats? Yeah, no, I... Well, so I think... If I can start with two two meta points, and then I'll pause, and if you want me to keep going, I can. So, first and foremost, we as as we are, as I articulated at the beginning, we have entered this new era of thinking about a cell like a factory that runs on digital code in the form of DNA. Viruses are similar; they run on and on RNA, but they all run on code. And I think that, that that first point is really important to think about how we address biological threats going forward. Okay, so that's, that's kind of um, a really important mindset point number one. And point number two is, as you, as you articulate, I think we're going to see an era of increasing, we've just seen it even over the last 20 years, increasing kind of throughput of these threats. Um, but on the other side, we we have this new ability to write good code, program cells. That's Moderna's vaccine, mRNA. An mRNA vaccine is simply a programmed piece of code that goes into your body to tell your body to produce something to give you more protection. We have the ability to write new, new capabilities to combat these uh, types of threats. So I think our our mindset should shift to one that looks a lot more like how we think about cybersecurity, right? And I think cybersecurity, if you, if you really kind of process through it, what is that model? It is persistent and pervasive monitoring. We, we, you know, your devices, your iPhone, our computers in the background are constantly watching the zeros and ones that are flowing across and the programs that are flowing through your devices. And when there's an anomaly, so this is a boring, persistent, pervasive collection. But when there's an anomaly that gets flagged and immediately characterized as, is this very bad or not so bad? Now, remember the uh, mid-90s when everybody had Windows 95 computers and this is nothing against Microsoft, but like our, our mitigation there was like, uh, you know, you, you keep using your computer until it had too many viruses on it that it wouldn't work anymore and you just had to throw it away and get a new computer, right? That was very visceral. Like you had to run antivirus on your own computer. Now that doesn't happen today. We're way more advanced. It's all in the background. The same thing is happening, persistent monitoring. And then when there's an anomaly, it is flagged. And then a huge army of software engineers writes patches for it. And so the very same thing is the mindset for what is going on today and how we fight zoonotic diseases or as we enter a new era of, of engineered threats, potentially. Those we should be monitoring persistently, pervasively using DNA sequencing, which is now pervasive and much less expensive than it used to be and increasingly getting inexpensive identifying and characterizing threats when they emerge, and then leveraging places like Moderna, the biotech ecosystem, cell engineering platforms like Ginkgo to write patches. 
it's the, like the model has been proven. The analogy that we, you know, computers stole the words virus and infection from biology. We use the analogy of programming cells to talk about what we're doing in the cell programming side. I think the time has come to learn from how cybersecurity has been developed and do it before before it's too late, unlike with cybersecurity, which has been patching a lot of vulnerabilities after the fact, let's build it into the bioeconomy from the beginning and build it into our defenses from the beginning. And I think the time has come to like, look at cybersecurity as a really good model for how to think about the capabilities that need to be built. You've been involved in large scale testing and monitoring programs, including the CDC's genomic testing efforts. What's going on in this area? What are you doing in this area? Yeah, so it's, this has been an interesting, um, you know, everybody's had an interesting uh, and, and kind of crazy three years. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we have this we had this general purpose biotech platform at Ginkgo. And so many people across the world said kind of, what can I do to help with what I have? And what we said is, okay, how can we help respond to COVID-19? But our mission at Ginkgo is to make biology easier to engineer. If we're going to do this, remember, we remember this is the internal conversation. We've been having a philosophical conversation about our obligations and responsibility to building the tools of biosecurity broadly defined, the tools of um, uh, the technology tools for public health to protect against this next generation of biological engineering. If we are going to be at the cutting edge of making biology easier to engineer, said differently, we need to also be at the cutting edge of inventing technologies to help uh, mitigate the threats that can come from biology. And so when COVID hit, this was just an opportunity for us to help with COVID, but also we always looked at it through the lens of, we are gonna uniquely continue figuring out how to invest in this category, public health technologies, the new technologies of biosecurity. And so one of the major things we looked at was early, remember before vaccines, right? We took, we took the approach in the US, I think China took a very different approach. We can talk about that. Um, and there's just lessons to be learned from all of it, not one better than the other in, in its aggregate. And we took the approach obviously to wait for vaccines, but remember everybody wanted to get back into congregate settings before vaccines were ready, or what if vaccines didn't work? So early in 2020, we started looking at these big problems and the one that really crystallized for us was schools, because it was like, okay, people can work from home. You don't really, in all cases, in some places you do, but not in many cases in a knowledge economy, you don't need to go back to the office. But schools, we need to get our kids in person. And it is not satisfactory either to take the approach of just like, you know what, we can't do anything, let everybody get it, or keep kids at home. And so what we started to ask ourselves, were there modern tools of biotechnology, like PCR testing, by the way, is not a you know, is a relatively recent innovation that could be applied in scaled ways to solve big problems of, um, you know, like getting kids back to school. And so what we kind of innovated with, with other places like the Broad Institute in the state of Massachusetts was to say, can we do tests to monitor, i.e. test a whole classroom together and only do follow up and remove the individuals if there's a positive classroom, All right? And we would pull a whole classroom together, test, and then intervene or, or provide guidance to the public health officials or principals or otherwise to help them intervene uh, where needed to keep outbreaks down. And it was really an interesting infrastructure. 
we designed it so that it could support 55 million K through 12 students across the across the country. We ended up operating in over 4,000 institutions across um, with with programs in something like 26 states. And then, so that's test to monitor, right? If you think about a tool of biosecurity, community level programs where you, if you have an outbreak of something, and again, the long-term view, it doesn't just have to be SARS-CoV-2. Same technology could be applied to polio in schools or congregate settings. Same technology applied to things like monkeypox. It's infrastructure that we've been able to build through these large scale test to monitor programs. And CDC had a major one funded by the American Rescue Plan um, called the ELC program in schools. Um, HHS runs a major one called Operation Expanded Testing that we are continuing to be a performer in. That same infrastructure leveraging lots of labs and and essentially what is a radar system for looking for SARS-CoV-2 is really valuable biodefense infrastructure. We have also applied that to places like um, we have a, a program that just actually the dashboard launched today on CDC, which we've been running for a year in pilot mode and now in full scale mode, which is collecting samples off of airplanes as they come into the country, right? Doesn't sound crazy. You know, where do, to your point about interconnectivity, where do new pathogens come from? They come from people traveling. And so with CDC, what we're doing is collecting wastewater and and surveillance samples off of airplanes to look for SARS-CoV-2 variants. Now that can be applied obviously to other, um, other infectious diseases, but today we're looking for variants. We found um, some of the first copies of BA2 back uh, as you know, Omicron was expanding far before you found them in clinical sendings. We think about that as a sensor, an early warning. Just remember like the cybersecurity analogy, right? Look for anomalies early so that you can then inform the industry that can patch, in this case, the industry that can create therapeutics or vaccines or even public health so they can provide smart interventions based on data and not just you know, somebody showing up sick in a hospital. And so I think that's the, those are the, the real test to monitor programs. It's one thing to detect something you're looking for. It's something else to detect a pathogen you may not have thought to look for. How good is our ability to, to detect the emergence of new pathogens? Yeah, so I love to, I love to talk about this because I, I really have a... You know, I think the big thing that is changing in many places and we need to just keep changing is the is kind of the mindset on this topic. We need to think about it like a like anything else we've done in technology development, continuous improvement. What is what we have today is good. And if we invest in it, like we invest in software version releases, it will keep getting better. And so the way we would think about this infrastructure today is um, maybe two great examples of it. You've got to do collection because there's not that much bio data out there. So taking wastewater off of an airplane or, you know, collecting surveillance samples in schools to look for outbreaks. That's all data collection, right? Or again, mindset is ATCs and Gs. I was like, I always joke, you know, the, um, the, you know, the Matrix movies, those were like nice and all, but like they, sh- the movie should have been made with ATCs and Gs, not zeros and ones, because that actually would have described the Matrix that we live in. We live in the planet that is literally just a bunch of ATCs and Gs flowing. And so that collection piece needs to happen. You need to get that data. And then with that data, all of it needs to go on a sequencer. And over time, you know, every country today, you know, almost all countries today have sequencing capacity on the planet. The next step is 
is the task of bioinformatics. How do we keep having bioinformatics as a critical function that gets trained and deployed? And today it's highly custom. Mostly it's happening in incredibly sophisticated academic centers or companies like Ginkgo. And that is a, a kind of custom process of interpreting sequence data that you know, I think you will see, and the mindset needs to shift increasingly, a continued reliance on investing in interpreting and analyzing data, both to look for things we know and things that look a lot like things we know or things that we don't know. And I'll give you one example where that's happening. We just announced on Monday um, here at Ginkgo in Boston, IARPA, which is the um, intelligence community's uh, DARPA for the, you know, to, to keep building on acronym, acronyms upon acronyms, but IARPA is the Intelligence Advanced Research Project, uh, Projects Agency, um, just like DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So they're tasked with moonshot type um, uh, programs. And, and back in 2017, we and, and others like Draper Labs were asked to be um, performers in a program called Felix. And what that program was meant to do is find different ways, if you had a sample, if you were given a sample, could you score it or tell IARPA if there was something genetically engineered about that sample? Right, really important question. Very, very important in the context of, um, you know, a future of a lot of genetic engineering happening. It could be because of, you know, a lab made a mistake and something got out. It could be because somebody was doing something malicious. But if there's a sample that has something engineered in it, it's not a good thing that if you're randomly finding it somewhere. And you want to know how bad it is. So they challenged a bunch of us to figure out if we could in a ran, essentially in a, you know, kind of sequence that we didn't know where it came from, determine if something was genetically engineered. Ginkgo took the approach of basically saying, well, we have, you know, many, many years of genetically engineered code base, right? Every time we do a cell program, every time we, you know, that strain test I talked about, every time we program a cell and characterize it, we collect that data. So we know we, and we program more data than anybody on the planet. We know what it looks like when you genetically engineer something. So what we did is essentially computationally with that bioinformatics team that we talked about, built some ways to look at a sequence and compare it and score it. And I'm using my, you know, layperson's version of this and, and our team would, uh, you know, scoff at the, the, the simplistic way I'm explaining it, but essentially take a, a, genetic sequence and score it by looking at it and, and determining if it looks genetically engineered. So when I say continuous improvement, that's one method, right? We should be continually to do that across different areas. Look for new viruses, look for things that look like, uh, look like um, coronaviruses, but might be different, might not be in one of our standard databases. This industry, just like cybersecurity is constantly looking for new things, is growing. It is certainly something we're heavily investing in at Ginkgo on our biosecurity side to build those capabilities essentially to do virus and bad biology hunting um, as part of these large-scale monitoring programs. It's really, it's actually really neat. And it's, I think people will be blown away by this new category called biosecurity. Just like before computers, there wasn't a category called cybersecurity. There wasn't a market called cybersecurity. Of course, there's going to be a new category in a 50 years of 50 years of a world defined by biology called biosecurity. The, the flip side of that, keeping with the analogy with computer programming, is we've gotten good at writing and synthesizing DNA, much as we can now write viruses for computers. Uh, the, 
particularly because the the bar to accessing that technology has really been lowered. Uh, you, you talk about what I assume is using artificial intelligence here to detect potentially dangerous code. That same type of technology can help someone identify DNA sequences that would be pathogenic that maybe don't yet exist in nature. How good are we at detecting this and how how attuned to this threat are we from a a large scale basis? Yeah, oh great question. So three important components to this. One, there there absolutely needs to be a continued focus from government and uh, academia and public and private sectors broadly about the need for voluntary compliance with monitoring of DNA synthesis of like who is who is asking for what. So we're part of um, something called the International Gene Synthesis Consortium, which is a group of people, voluntary group of people developing protocols to screen synthetic DNA for concerning sequences, right? We know what, you know, somebody could be ordering to knit together something bad. I think that there's always going to be a need for this kind of like recognition, agreement on protocols, monitoring of the genetic sequences that are being ordered. It it makes it easier if you have centralized, low-cost DNA synthesis facilities, because those are the places that can know, if, if they care about this mission of monitoring what's being synthesized, they can know what orders they're receiving and do their best job to interpret what somebody might be trying to do and making sure that it's not nefarious. I think the second thing is to recognize that, and and we have to have a global recognition, a national security recognition, that by definition, people that would seek to do something bad aren't going to be really, you know, um, uh, incredibly inclined to want to participate in voluntary internet, you know, gene synthesis consortium monitoring, right? By By definition. And so this is where the role, and this is where something where we are very focused from a technology development standpoint, large scale, large, large scale, non-human genomic surveillance, persistent and pervasive collections. So you know what is going on, you know, like how many billions of dollars a year do we spend as a, as a world flying satellites around the planet? to make sure to monitor each other and our use of, or thankfully non-use of nuclear weapons. Hey, you know, we're counting the number of nuclear weapons. Are they being refueled? Are they on active alert status? Are they being moved? Why is that that we do that? We do that because really great pervasive surveillance, while it can be used very maliciously, and we should be always vigilant about that, is the most important and the most powerful defensive tool and deterrent tool that can exist. Because if you have really great surveillance, anybody that would seek to do something bad, three things happen. One, you can get early warning. Sorry, one, you can get early warning, right? You can prepare yourself if something bad is about to happen. You can see that somebody's engineering and trying to create some new um, genetically modified bubonic plague. Second, before that even, you can see intentions. You know, you can learn if somebody seems to be moving in a direction that would be nefarious. So you can start shaping the environment 
right? Like you can put more barriers up to people getting access to things. You can build regulation. And then third, as important as anything else, if somebody ever did something, you would be able to, if you're monitoring everything, very persistent surveillance, you would know where it came from and you would be able to have attribution. Attribution matters deeply because that is, that is what will deter behavior. You don't need to do, you know, this can all be defensive, which it should be if you're doing that because there's plenty of ways that uh, if somebody does something, whether economic or otherwise, um, nations can gather together to create consequences uh, for somebody doing, you know, engineering something bad. So the first part is a laser focus on global cooperation, public, private, academic. The second part is recognizing that malicious actors won't sign up for this and that we need a, and I don't mean a, a 10x improvement, I mean a 1,000 to 10,000x improvement in our aspiration to do monitoring of biology, non-human biology, in the same way as we monitor zeros and ones or fly satellites around uh, the planet to look for uh, early warning that somebody would seek to do something bad with conventional weapons. So I think, I think that's the way to think about you know, how, how, to, um, how to approach your question. The big missing piece, honestly, today is you know, a massive scale improvement in our kind of monitoring for these types of threats. Well, what is it going to take for us to get there? I do think the, well, yeah, so I do think the um, executive order, the national security strategy, the national strategy on biodefense, at least in the U.S. context, is a really big step in that direction. Um, those, all of those documents make a clear focus and outline and, and have a clear outline towards expansion of, um, you know, bo monitoring biology. Um, I think the second, the second thing that, you know, needs to be true, and this is part of that process, as much as I hate to say it, because we do believe there's a massively important role for, and it continues to be, and I personally would advocate for a substantial improvement in investment in public health and global health. Um, I think the, that making sure that, that the national security organizations of the world, both the U.S. and otherwise, see the threat of natural man-made or mistakenly released biology as a national security threat is critical towards achieving the investment required. Because like, look, we fund public health episodically. National security in the US, it's a trillion dollars a year spent on mostly preparedness, right? You know, the, the historical definition, standing armies exist for as an insurance policy monitoring exists every year and you hope never to have to alert that something bad is happening. And so I think there needs to be a big, to get there, to answer your question, you know, directly to get there, you have to see a reallocation of national security budgets focused around this topic and then technology development. You need companies like Ginkgo and there's others that are doing cool stuff to say, yep, this isn't about the old, this is actually about technology innovation to invent the ways to go globally collect data to synthesize it quickly, to run programs like Endar, the, the genetic engineering detector, to keep improving those, to invest in this industry, just like in, in other industries, we have the private sector, the innovators that are building businesses with these technologies, you know, deploying them against this big problem. So how do you make sure that that keeps happening? I can, I can tell you, Ginkgo's deeply invested in it. We uniquely have this mission to make biology easier to engineer. It is squarely on mission. I'd love to see, you know, continued, escalation of this of this ecosystem of companies 
uh, emerging to provide technology and biosecurity. There's a, a human tendency to respond to the last crisis, not the one that's ahead. How attuned are governments to the biological threats, both natural and man-made? Yeah, it is, um, it is wide and varied. Um, you know, I would say that uh, in the United States, primarily, which I'll speak to, we have had an amazing group of human beings for many, many decades focused on this problem. Um, if you, you know, why is that? You know, so if you, if you hearken back to the Cold War, um, you know, the Soviet Union had one of the largest bioweapons programs. Um, no, it had the largest bioweapons program ever known on the planet. And so we've had a group of people, but very, you know, so, but I would say the first phase of this is a very technically focused, very specific team focused on the, the question of bad biology or biology used inappropriately. I would say though that the preparedness on the scale that we're talking to really defend against this future of a world where engineering becomes more powerful, where there's just more biotech happening in BSL-4 labs across the world and BSL-2 and 3 labs across the world. I would say that the, the missing piece is like, we've never been able to like shift into scale mode. So even the anthrax, anthrax attacks in the early 2000s where that whole deep you know, collective uh, knowledge from many great leaders was there. And you had people like Bill Frist, an MD in the Senate, really pushing to re really catalyze a different pandemic preparedness or bioweapons preparedness program. It just never, it just never clicked. And I, I think my analysis of that would be two major things. We didn't have a, a society changing moment like we have had with SARS-CoV-2 where people see the power of 29,000 base pairs of RNA and its power to shut down the global economy. So that's a collective mindset change. And then second, the tools just weren't advanced enough to do anything really great about building biosecurity tools. So we now have a convergence of the body politic understanding the threat and the technology tools to do something at scale about it. You know, I mentioned our CDC programs, the global, global collection monitoring, things like NDAR, our genetic engineering detector. Those two can come together. Now the last piece needs to come back is the political will, the budgeting, the focus around shifting this into national security. And in that, I do think you're seeing it, right? We've talked about the EO and national security strategy, national strategy and biodefense. It's starting to happen. So I think for this to work going forward, you need those three to come together. The, the collective consciousness of the country or the uh, kind of world population technology, two of which didn't exist prior to COVID uh, in the last five years um, from a technology development standpoint. And then and the kind of policy and prioritization effort of the government. Those three are coming together. So I do, I'm very cautiously optimistic about uh, what we'll see going forward. How can we best grow the bioeconomy while safeguarding against the risk we're creating? More, more uh, awesome podcasts like this, being willing to get the word out. Um, I mean, and that's not even a flippant answer, right? Um, I, I think that it's real. Like, the, the education mission on what is coming is, you know, you know Daniel, it's incredibly important. It's, it is, this is not, this is not a topic that is, 
that is just obviously easy to get your head around, right? Both the bioeconomy, like what does it mean to engineer biology to make incre- incredible products, right? That like that is, you know, that is a an esoteric concept that is very technical. But so how do we make that accessible? Make accessible the idea that hey, let me give you an example. You know, Giga works with this company called Light Bio. What they're doing is genetically engineering plants to glow in the dark. Oh, that's cool. That's actually a product I want. I want like I want my front yard to have glow in the dark um, plants along my on the path, so that I don't have to have so I don't have to have electric lights. Now that would be neat, right? Help people understand the cool things that are coming from this. And then on this, so education is a huge, uh, hugely important part of it. And then you know how do we safeguard it? It is companies like Ginkgo caring how our platform is used, and I mean that. In, in its expansive term, we have to we have to use our resources to think about inventing technologies to protect against the things we are seeing because we will be able, you know, I don't know if the number is ninety five percent or ninety nine percent of the time to see the edge cases of what is coming as more and more engineering is done on our platform, and so companies like ours and others being truly being willing to engage in the conversation of what needs to be invested in doing invested in building and doing so in partnership not in disruption with government we truly see like this the security part of this is a government job whether it's public health or national security this is a collective action problem and it's a government job our our um, role is with other companies and other organizations that can invent the technology is to empower government to do the best job it can and so those two pieces have to come together daniel it's like it is people have to be inspired by the future of bio, you know, of amazing products that they want from from the bioeconomy that fix climate change, that give them something cool to use, that that make something more sustainable. And then also those same companies have to be in partnership with government, inventing technologies and making sure they get deployed at massive scale. Those two things happen. I think we're like in for a really rocking 50 years of incredible economic growth. Uh, and and safe economic growth, and and I also think there's risk in, in if those things don't happen. Matt McKnight, General Manager of Biosecurity at Ginkgo BioWorks. Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week. Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.